The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Warm welcome everybody to Sportbox. You're watching Steve Sedgwick, Karen Show, and I'm Jeff Cutmore. And let's get into your headlines. So we made some progress at the EU leaders meeting. Germany agrees to a significant financial contribution. Angela Merkel says there must be no asymmetrical, asymmetrical recovery, but there are still many details and questions unresolved about the source of funding. Substantial investments to the European Union will be necessary, and I have also made it clear that it will not just be a matter of simply continuing as we did before the pandemic, but there will also be a matter of investing in the future. Gilead shares fall, also turning sentiment on Wall Street after a leaked WHO report shows disappointing results in a trial of its highly watched coronavirus treatment. But the biotech company calls the findings inconclusive. President Trump says his administration may extend social distancing guidelines until early summer or beyond after 16 states release formal reopening plans. Shares in Intel fall sharply in after-hours trade after the tech company's guidance for the second quarter disappoints. It also warns the temporary boost in demand for chips could turn into a slump, making a four-year target impossible. The winners and losers of the British retail sector will be revealed later on today when we get British retail sales. This is the French supermarket giant uh, Casino. Sees revenues boosted by unprecedented demand. We're going to speak to the CFO later on on this show. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has called on European Union member states to raise their contributions to the bloc, adding that, quote, significant investments will be needed to help the worst hit regions get through the crisis. Merkel was speaking after Thursday's virtual EU Council summit, where leaders tasked the EU Commission with laying out a coronavirus emergency fund that's expected to set aside at least one trillion euros. However, member states remain split over how relief should be dispersed. Italy, France and Spain have demanded EU-issued grants to help their economies, something Germany has ruled out. Merkel stressed that any increase in EU contributions would also serve as an investment into the bloc's future. Substantial investments to the European Union will be necessary, and I have also made it clear that it will not just be a matter of simply continuing as we did before the pandemic, but there will also be a matter of investing in the future. For Germany, of course, this also means that we must expect higher contributions for the next budget than we had planned when we conducted the last budget negotiations. But that is right and good. This is a crisis that has hit us all, but which affects the EU member states in very different ways. Let's get out Sylvia for more. Sylvia, it's been hailed as some sign of solidarity, but it still looks like a plan to have a plan when we don't know any details of what the recovery plan may look like at this stage. 
So let's look at this step by step because there's a lot of things involved here. So the leaders essentially ask the European Commission to develop a new proposal for the next EU budget. This is the seven-year framework that funds projects across Europe and this was a discussion that was already ongoing at the EU level prior to the pandemic. And now the leaders essentially ask the Commission to come up with a new proposal for this so-called MFF. We're going to be hearing this, uh, this, these three little letters often in the coming weeks. So they want this next EU budget to be bigger, obviously, to deal with economic shock from the pandemic and to include a recovery fund. However, though, there's still a lot of dispute as to whether this recovery fund should be made of loans or grants and indeed its size. And so this is uh, essentially the two big question marks that the Commission needs to answer in the, in the next few weeks. Essentially, they want to develop these, this proposal at uh, the latest in the, the second week of May and the, actually yesterday after the summit we heard from Ursula von der Leyen, she's the head of the European Commission and she explained why in her opinion the next EU budget is the right framework to deal with, you know, with the ongoing economic shock from COVID-19. The investment should be front-loaded in the first years and of course it is uh, necessary to find the right balance between grants and loans. This whole endeavor is about protecting the integrity of our single market and of our union. And if we do it well and succeed, then the investments will have been worth every single cent we pay for them now. So developing this new recovery fund via the EU budget is easier politically speaking because every single country already knows the process, is comfortable with it. On the other hand, though, it might lack some ambition when it comes to the numbers. And this is why it's important to know what this proposal from the Commission will look like if we were talking about 1.5 trillion euros or more. What we heard from von der Leyen yesterday is that it will be trillions, not billions of euros. So let's wait for that proposal in the coming weeks. I have to say, though, that within the EU budget framework, the, the funding only starts kicking in at the, in 2021, so in January. And so in this context, some countries ask the Commission for some bridge financing. So within that proposal that the Commission needs to develop over the coming weeks, it also needs to come up with an idea of how countries could potentially access this recovery fund before 2021. But as I said before, now the big responsibility is in the hands of Wonderlion and her team. Let's see how that proposal will look like in the coming weeks. Sylvia, thank you very much for fleshing out the detail. Joining us now is Holger Schmieding, Chief Economic and uh, Chief Economist at Berenberg. Stephen Jeff also on the line this morning. Holger, good morning to you. Uh, clearly, uh, big events playing out in Europe. But that said, we still don't have detail. And uh, the fight over grants versus loans, we've seen that play out in the United States with the airline sector. As some of the airlines were saying, hey, we can't take this money, then be stuck with all of the debts to pay back uh, down the track for many years to come. It's the same argument here in Europe, isn't it? We've got countries already saddled with debt, they take on more debt if it's not a grant and it's a loan, then that's a problem for Europe. Well, at least there is some progress. First of all, if the loans were to be at very favourable terms, that would still be a significant help to countries such as Italy, who at the moment borrow in markets at much higher yields that they have to pay than, say, Germany. So loans under good conditions would already be a significant help. A good element of grants on top of that would be another help. 
The good thing is that apparently yesterday EU leaders did not really disagree very much when it came to the overall principle. Instead, they tried to sound much more like there should be solidarity. We are making at least some progress over it. And this was much better than what EU leaders had communicated in the past, but it was largely about the still unresolved disputes rather than the overall direction we want to help each other. Italy does seem to be the key because there was some reporting that the Italians did not want to tap the ESM, the recovery fund that stands uh, as part of the, the European budget to, to help out member states because there was some connotation with tapping that rescue fund after what had happened with Greece. We don't have greater bonds that was not put forward yesterday and there was no sort of general uh, appetite to, to have some sort of debt mutualization across the board. So what does that mean when we still have this ESM as the main mechanism for member states to tap? First of all, the ESM would be a mechanism to be used pretty much this year, you could say, kind of a bridge until we have the bigger recovery fund. With Italy now being much more satisfied, apparently, with the overall direction of the debate, it is now possibly easier for Mr. Conte, the Italian Prime Minister, to get a domestic consensus for actually going to the ESM, ideally with some other countries, so that there is less of a stigma effect. So the improved political climate in Europe, you could say, is something that could help to use the ESM tool. And on top of that, I would say Italy should be quite happy that the overall direction is moving in the way of substantial support down the road, even if, of course, this is Europe. Details take quite some time. Uh, yes, quite some time. That's very near my next point, Holger. Very good morning to you. Can we just confirm then for all our viewers watching and for the international community that every ounce of debt which is added to countries and to sovereigns books now will still be with us in a decade or maybe two decades or three decades time? Because let's face it, not one uh, cent, euro, whatever you want to call it, of debt that was added in terms of debt to GDP to the Italian books to the Greek books from the last financial crisis uh, has been diminished yet, i.e. we came into this crisis with 130% debt to GDP in Italy, 180% in Greece, and these figures are going to be much bigger on the back of these recovery efforts and are going to be with us for decades to come, yeah? Well, the debts will, of course, be significantly bigger, but now that we have a serious contribution going through the EU budget, some of that debt will, whichever way you want to call it, be joint debt, that is debt guaranteed by the European institutions, which are guaranteed by member states. This entire debate about corona bonds, rather national debt, in my view, is to some extent a little weird, because we are now going down the route towards some kind of joint borrowing through the EU largely, which, whether you want to call it corona bonds or not, is basically that it is debt that's jointly guaranteed and hence much easier for Italy to bear. But Holger, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt and sorry to probably pick on the same point I picked on for the last decade as well. But it doesn't matter if you put the bad debts into a bad bank or you put it into a different place. Debt is debt. Uh, and the amalgamated debt is still going to be the same kind of thing, whether the Italians have got their share on their own books or via an EU mechanism. And if the Greeks have got their debt on their own books or via an EU mechanism, it's the same debt. The debt's still there, isn't it? No matter where you put it, it's wait, still going wait, to be there wait, for decades to come. Well, this is well, my point. Well, 
Wait a minute. First of all, the debt trajectory in the overall United States is significantly worse than it is in the Eurozone. If we take the overall region, not pick on the two individual states within the Eurozone that have higher debt. And secondly, the big point about all this is to make it much easier for Italy to bear its debt. And to some extent, remember, we are also talking about some grants in this rather than just loans. And to some extent, these EU uh, plans will likely mean that Italy ends up with de less debt than it would have before would have had otherwise. So it probably means less debt for Italy, and it means the debt that it has, at least the debt it incurs in the current crisis, to some extent, being financed at much more generous terms. That I would say is significant help for Italy to make the situation more bearable. And the investments to be financed, if we are lucky, will also do a little good here and there. Holger, can I talk to you about the bigger carrot, this uh, trillion euro recovery fund? It, it seems to me there are lots of challenges here. Not only do we not ultimately see how this is going to be put together and who's going to contribute to it, but what is it going to do? What is it going to invest in? How will that share be broken down? Will it reflect the various contributions from different constituents? And if that's the case, then less of it will go to countries like Italy, Spain and Portugal than will potentially go to Germany. I, I, see, I see all sorts of challenges even further down the road, even if we get the money. First of all, of course, there are serious challenges. We are nowhere close to the end of the dispute about all this, but that in a way is not a real surprise. Um, this is a lot of money. Much of it, it's hard to say, or but much of it will probably work like the EU budget. That is, everybody pays in, but some countries get a lot more out of it than others, so that Germany is a significant net payer, whereas in this case, Italy will probably end up being a significant net recipient of funds from the EU for the corona pandemic fight. As to the normal EU budget, Italy currently is a net contributor. With this new expanded budget, Italy can expect to end up being a significant net recipient of EU funds. You could say that is de facto a grant from the others, the net payers to Italy. That will help. And what is it going to invest in? Is it going to build roads? Is it going to build bridges? Is it going to go to companies? Is it going to buy well, Italian government debt? I'm, this is the, well, the difficult part, it seems to me, that we saw with the Juncker uh, fund. What ultimately does it do and does it crowd out private investment in Europe? Well, that's, of course, a very big question. What precisely is going to be funded? We'll see that very likely Italy will be reimbursed and other countries will be reimbursed to some extent, probably to a significant extent, for all the expenses that are directly related to the pandemic. On top of that, we'll probably get significant support for government-led investment with the hope of crowding in private investment, which, as you referring to the Juncker plan suggests, is, of course, an interesting way. The, that element may never fully work. It never fully worked with the Juncker plan. But to me, it's not really important whether it ends up being being uh, 1 trillion or 1.5 trillion, including hope for crowding in of private investment. The real message is the Italian fiscal position will be significantly better 
through this mechanism than it would be otherwise. And that, given that Italy has been hit so hard by the pandemic, is something which is justified and which is help for Italy and help for Europe by at least try helping, hopefully, to improve the political climate in Europe somewhat. Holger, thank you so much for joining us today. Holger Schmieding, a chief economist at Berenberg, running us through the latest from this so-called recovery fund for Europe. Uh, we are going to take a quick break. Uh, plenty coming up on the show, including lots of market-moving news. Uh, had an inadvertent post on the WHO website claims a new drug that could potentially treat coronavirus failed its first clinical trial. More on that news at Royal Wall Street right after the break. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Breaking news from Nestle as it reports its first quarter numbers and, of course, uh, clearly the impact of COVID-19 important uh, when it was last uh, giving us some a sense of what could play out in February. It was talking about the impact from China then, but clearly broader now. As we look at the organic growth for the first three months, it reached 4.3% with real internal growth of 4.7% and pricing of minus 0.4%. This is a little bit similar to Unilever yesterday where we saw that drop in the pricing segment, but volume held up. So you are seeing a negative uh, on that pricing side. Q1 growth was supported by strong momentum in the Americas and Zone EMEA, the the Zone AOA saw a sharp sales decline. So it's breaking down by jurisdiction. The total reported sales uh, decreased by 6.2% to 20.8 Swiss francs, uh, 20.8 billion Swiss francs. Compare that to the prior year where you had a tally of about 22.2 billion. Q1 acquisitions uh, net of divestitures reduced sales by 4.7%. Foreign exchange uh, reduced sales by 5.8%. So some of the fluctuations you saw on the markets uh, concentrated around currencies having an impact there. When we talk about divestments, we're talking about the United States ice cream business uh, that was sold for $4 billion US dollars to a front uh, front area. It was completed on the 31st of January, so just before the height of this crisis uh, started to grip China and, uh, of course, other markets. Now, the sale of a 60% stake in Herta, this is the cold cuts and meat-based products business to uh, Casa, is expected to close in the first half of 2020. So still trying to bed down some of these transactions while the impact of COVID-19 plays out. Nestle has decided to explore strategic options, including potential sale for its uh, Yinlu peanut milk and canned rice porridge business in China. It will retain and develop its existing and Nescafe ready-to-drink coffee business. It's still too early to impact or assess the full impact of COVID-19. They maintain their original four-year 2020 guidance for the time being. Also, uh, just worth noting, as we wrapped up uh, last year for this company, where you had seen a pop was in the pet food business and also in coffees after the purchase of Starbucks, the company missing its organic targets at that stage. Got to say this year, well, organic targets, they're all up in the air and we may see a swing in the sort of products, the, the appetite a lot of customers have for certain goods at this stage with lockdowns in place in many countries in those jurisdictions that that Nestle covers. Want to take you to US markets. 
uh, fairly big events playing out. There was a lot of hope and optimism around vaccines and treatments in the last few sessions. And Gilead, uh, one is uh, one of the companies that many in the markets were closely eyeing for a treatment. News uh, had started leak from the WHA report, but that trial had failed. And a little bit of pushback from the company, but the disappointing news was not taken well by the markets. And we saw the Dow at one stage in session as the report crossed in the FT here in London. It shared about 400 points, uh, rather strong effort to try and get back into positive territory, just eking out a small gain, as you can see by the Finnish S&P, though, fading, and also the Nasdaq in negative territory. If you look at uh, the impact on those markets and what we've seen over the course of the week, a lot of red ink across the boards. Dow down about 3% so far for the week, 2.6% coming off the likes of the S&P 500 the Asian markets. And let's get a look. Uh, the Japanese stock market falling 1% or 202 points. So it is risk off sweeping across some of these markets. Hong Kong dropping. Shanghai's uh, down three, uh, three, three quarters of 1%, I should say. 2,817 where we're trading the session. And you can see Australia just tipping paused at this point. US futures important as we count down to the session to see whether there's going to be any stabilization. And keep in mind, we had stimulus, which was a positive. The House of Representatives pushing forward that a bill that was passed by the Senate around more relief funding, almost 500 billion worth. That was a positive, uh, but the market's still eyeing the science side. And you can see Dow Jones futures uh, pulling back at this stage. Gilead says a new study of an antiviral drug that could potentially treat COVID-19 is inappropriately characterised and inconclusive. This after the WHO accidentally leaked a report claiming the biotech firm's medicine Remdesivir failed its first clinical trial. The news, which was reported by the Financial Times, sent shares in the company sharply lower. Juliana joins us with more. This was one of the big props for the Nasdaq in uh, recent sessions as investors had hoped that there would be some success with that treatment. Here we have a second leak report and this one's negative versus the first one that was very positive. Absolutely. This has been a really market-moving story that's evolved over the last couple of weeks. And what we learned yesterday after the WHO prematurely and accidentally really posted a summary paragraph of results from a study going on in China with remdesivir. Remdesivir is one of the first medicines that was identified as a potential contender to treat COVID-19. So this is just one study, this one study in China. Unfortunately, this study showed that the, those who took the drug did not show any significant improvement. So it was a, a fairly damning report. The FT picked it up and the headline of their article that they ran that really moved the market was that the drug flopped in its first clinical trial. Gilead swiftly came out with a response saying, as you said, Karen, that the uh, data was inappropriately concluded. It inappropriately characterized the study and we need to wait for full peer-reviewed results. Part of the reason it mischaracterized the study is that it was terminated early due to low enrollment, so the results themselves were inconclusive. Encouragingly, Gilead also said that there were trends in the data in China to suggest a potential benefit for remdesivir for patients who took the drug early in the disease. The next catalyst for markets is going to be the real results from two of Gilead's studies that they themselves are conducting. One with severe patients will get results of that study by the end of the month, so we won't have to wait long. And then in May, we'll get results of the clinical trials they're doing with patients who have moderate symptoms. Yeah, just a, a dose of uh, caution, I think, for the markets. They got so carried away that there would be some remedy uh, just waiting in the wings in uh, some of these stockpiles ready to be used. But uh, clearly, it's going to take a little bit more time.
Uh, U.S. President Trump says he may extend social distancing guidelines beyond the 1st of May if he doesn't feel the country is in a safe place. When asked if the federal guidelines would need to be extended until the start of summer, Trump said the U.S. may even go beyond that. The president also pledged to work with state governors on easing lockdowns. I've spoken to Mitch about it. I've spoken to numerous senators about it. And we're working with uh, senators that are on the other side of the issue, and we'll see what happens. But we're looking to do what's right for the people of this country. We're looking to do what's right for a particular state, and we'll see what happens. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.